Some witches become legendary within the history books. The Pendle Witches, the Witches of War Boys, Isabel Gaudi, even Edward IV's mother-in-law, Jaquetta of Luxembourg. And that's just in Britain. But how about the witches in myth and legend? How about someone like Morgan Le Fay? What about them? Why do they hold such fascination? Well, in this episode of Fabulous Folklore, we're going to meet Bafana, Baba Yaga and Kirka. Buckle up! Hello there and welcome to Fabulous Folklore, the podcast for all things folklore, occult and just a bit weird. I'm your host, Icy Sedgwick, blogger, fantasy author and your guide into these rather mysterious realms. I've got some rare things to show you, so come on in, take a look around, but be careful not to touch anything. These things sometimes bite. Well, hello there and welcome back to Fabulous Folklore with me, your host, Icy Sedgwick. I have no idea why I say that the way that I do every episode and one of these days I'm going to end up accidentally answering the phone like that. So that'll be a good day all round, I think. Now, welcome to the final episode of June. I can't believe it's nearly July already. It feels like this year has gone both incredibly slowly and incredibly quickly at the same time. Huzzah. So this week we are looking at Famous witches, and I was a bit stuck with this one because of the fact that you have famous witches in the history record and then you've got famous witches in myth and legend. And because somebody had requested Baba Yaga, I thought I'll go with the legendary one. I can always focus on famous witches if actually of history at some point in the future. And I can absolutely recommend books to you if you're interested in that in the meantime. But this week, as I say, we're going to have a look at witches that you'll find in folklore and tradition. So we're going to be looking at Befana from modern day Italy, Baba Yaga from Russian folktales and Kirka from ancient Greece. Just in case you're wondering where it is that we're going and who we're going to meet on the way. And I've picked these ones because, as I say, Baba Yaga was a request. Kirka is a personal favourite of mine and I just think Befana is great and possibly isn't as well known as she possibly could be. So that's why I thought I'd feature those ones. So without further ado, let's jump into this week's episode. Now we're going to start with Bafana, the Christmas witch. So in Italy, you might look forward to Epiphany Eve for extra presents or January the 5th if you prefer. Now Bafana fills stockings with sweets for good children and coal for bad ones. I've also seen it written somewhere that she leaves onions for people, which seems like a really odd choice for bad children because they're at least still useful. But anyway, unlike Santa, Bafana rides a broomstick, although they do both come down the chimney. You should be careful not to try and see Bafana though, because if she does realise that she's been spotted, she'll hit you with a broomstick. A lot of people have pointed out that's probably been invented by parents to make sure that the children stay in bed. And as you do with Santa, the family might leave out wine and some food for her as well. Now, according to the tradition, the three wise men stopped to ask her for directions on their way to see Jesus. And they actually invited her to go with them, but she was too busy cleaning her home. After they'd gone, she changed her mind and decided that, yes, she did want to go and meet the baby Jesus. So she filled a basket with presents for him and picked up a new broom for Mary. And Bafana follows the start of Bethlehem, but she can't find the manger when she gets there. So instead of searching for Jesus, she now goes looking for other children to receive her treats instead. Now, according to the legend, she will actually sweep the floor on her way back out again. And for some, she's sweeping out the old year so that the new year can begin properly. And for others, she's actually sweeping away the soot that she's left when she comes down the chimney. 
Now, it isn't a widespread tradition across all of Italy. Italia Living say that the tradition actually dates to the 13th century, and Heather Green claims that Befana's first appearance in a modern text is in a poem from 1549. So obviously it is entirely possible that the tradition predates 1549, but that gives you an idea how, how long she's appeared in written format for. Now, according to Claudia and Luigi Manciocco, Befana becomes a mythical ancestress, and she reaffirms, and I quote, the bond between the family and the ancestors through an exchange of gifts, end quote. So, like Santa Claus and Krampus, she then becomes a figure who can reward or punish based on a child's behaviour. Now, I actually asked my Italian friend Stefano Palmer about his experience of Befana at the turn of the 21st century in South Italy, and he explained that the socks that you leave out to get your candy, essentially, are much closer to the big stockings that we use at Christmas, you know, the really wide ones that don't actually look like you'd ever wear them. And then you would look forward to candies and other sweet things. And he did point out that the coal is actually more of a type of sweet black rock instead. So even if you end up getting coal as like a joke novelty present, it's still actually sweets. So it's kind of like a win-win situation. There are debates as to where Bafana gets her name from. And the most popular theory is that it's a mispronunciation of Epiphania, the Italian name for Epiphany. And others think that she's a remnant of Strenia, the Roman goddess of the New Year and purification. Now, this link actually appears in an 1823 text, although, not being funny, you do sometimes have to take 19th century claims about pagan links with a bit of a pinch of salt, especially when the book is written by an Anglican priest. And John Blunt bases his conclusion that Bafana is strenuous heir on the fact that people leave the same presence for Bafana. So the link is tenuous at best. Some people even debate whether she's a witch at all, because to some she's an old woman, and the witch associations only come from her long nose and broomstick. But it is a rare example of the signifiers of a witch actually applying to a positive figure rather than a negative one. And she's certainly viewed very warmly by those who celebrate the tradition. And there's various ways of celebrating it, including burning effigies of her, not as a isn't this person bad kind of way like we do with Guy Fawkes, but in like a let's burn the old year and welcome the new one. So it's more of a representational thing. And you also have like parades and people dressing up as Bafana and so on as well. So it's a very jolly tradition. Now we're going to move on to Baba Yaga, who's kind of the polar opposite, and she's basically queen of Russian folklore. And she's also quite the favourite of Folklore Thursday. If you ever look at the hashtag on Twitter, you can guarantee there'll be at least two or three pictures of Baba Yaga at any given point for any given theme. She is quite the favourite. And she usually appears as either an old woman or a trio of old women. And her name doesn't actually give us any real clues as to her function, if that makes sense. Because in Old Russian, Baba can mean midwife or sorceress. But in modern Russian and Serbo-Croatian, its closest translation is grandmother. Yaga is equally problematic, with scholars theorising it means everything from snake to horror to witch to wicked wood nymph and a whole other range of things besides. Now, Baba Yaga appears in folktales across Russia, Belarus and the Ukraine, although her first actual obvious mention appears in a book about Russian grammar in 1755, and she appears in a list of figures taken from Russian folktales. And I should point out in this particular, in one of those particular lists, because she appears in two, they're trying to equate... Russian figures with classical figures like Jupiter from Roman mythology and Baba Yaga essentially stands alone because she doesn't have any equivalent in any of the other mythological systems. She then makes an appearance in 1780 in a collection of Russian fairy tales by Vasily Levshin and this one basically is a version of Baba Yaga if not Baba Yaga as we come to know her and in this tale he actually gives her an origin story 
explaining that the devil cooked 12 nasty women together in a cauldron because he wanted to create the essence of evil and Baba Yaga was the result. Now, unlike Bafana, she doesn't fly on a broom and she actually flies in a mortar, as in a pestle and mortar, and she uses the pestle as a wand. Some of the stories also talk about the fact that she actually sweeps behind her on the forest floor with a broom to sweep away the tracks of the mortar. She has three servants on horseback. One of them is white, representing the dawn. The second is red, representing the sun. And the third is black, representing the night. And in these kind of cases, she's often seen as being in control of the natural world itself. Now her hut often appears in art and it's buried deep in the woods and it's able to walk on these huge chicken legs. So this idea of like a walking house often appears in various bits of art that you'll see and that's usually what's actually getting shared on Folklore Thursday. Now it is quite hard to find the hut, not least because obviously it can move, but you do need to be shown the way to find it. And if you find Baba Yaga, she will set you a task. And if she sets you a task and you fail, she will cook you and eat you. But this is where Baba Yaga gets quite interesting because she does help heroes through the Slavic myths as well as eating them, essentially. And she only actually pursues those who come to her door. So it's not like she would just pop up out of nowhere and suddenly do something evil. It's like you have to seek her out first or come across her land in some way. And if she makes a promise to the hero and he completes her tasks, she will keep her promise as well. So if she's so terrifying, why on earth would you go to seek her out to ask for her help? Well, she is incredibly wise, she can offer advice and she does help those who ask once they've fulfilled the criteria essentially. So we're going to have a look at an example of a story involving Baba Yaga and this is Vasilia the Beautiful. Now Vasilia is a young girl and her mother dies and her father remarries, which leaves Vasilia with an unpleasant stepmother and horrible stepsisters. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Well, this is where the story deviates quite substantially. So Vasilia's father goes away on business, so his new wife then sells the family home. So they all move to a cottage in the woods. And then the stepmother starts handing out these impossible tasks for them to do, particularly Vasilia. And the stepsisters eventually send her to Baba Yaga's hut, knowing her reputation for eating people. But Baba Yaga isn't so predictable, so she promises Vasilia fire in exchange for a series of hard chores. Now, Baba Yaga is no benevolent fairy godmother eager to help her young charge, and these tasks are really hard. One of them involves separating wheat kernels from grains of rice in a set time period. But Vasilia finishes every task, so true to her word, Baba Yaga gives her a skull lantern containing the promised fire. And then when she gets home, it incinerates her awful family, which is not the ending that I imagine you would get from any version of Cinderella. And furthermore, Vasilia actually ends up marrying the Tsar of Russia, so she does get a happy ending of sorts. Now, Baba Yaga herself becomes quite a difficult figure to characterise, because she can provide aid to the hero, but her help often involves hardship and danger, and she can equally act as the villain or trickster, and in some cases, she's actually both. And for Andreas Johns, this is why she's unique in European folklore. And he says, and I quote, Most folklore characters in European traditions behave in predictably unambiguous ways in relation to the hero or the heroine. They either help or hinder, end quote. And in Vladimir Prop's work around folk tales, which I highly recommend having a look at, particularly if you're a writer, he divides characters into roles. And these are things like the hero, the helper, the villain and the donor. So the person who provides like magical aid. And Baba Yaga is both the villain and the donor, sometimes in the same story. 
Now, like Bifana, early scholars try to find a link between the witch and ancient goddesses, and an interpretation of Baba Yaga from 1782 linked her with an early underworld goddess, while she was later linked with Persephone in 1795, and obviously we met Persephone a few weeks ago in an earlier episode. In the 19th century, Russian folklorists inspired by Grimm traced her through a range of European folktales, and they decided that she was, and I quote, the embodiment of the storm cloud also associated with death and winter, end quote. So she then becomes this literal force of nature. And she is a force entirely unto herself, unpredictable and contrary. And perhaps that's the point of Baba Yaga. Perhaps she doesn't need to be equated to anyone else. She is just her own witch, and that's what makes her so unique. Now, last but not least is Kirka, and unlike Bifana and Baba Yaga, her goddess status is not merely theoretical. She is actually the daughter of the sun god Helios and the nymph Persa, and her grandfather is the titan water god Oceanus, although some people do say that her mother was the goddess Hecate, but it's more usually seen to be the nymph Percy. And whilst Kirka is not as powerful as the Olympians, she's still considered divine. But what she lacks in goddess firepower, she more than makes up for with her own talents. She has three siblings, including Aetes, who's owner of the Golden Fleece, and Pasiphae, who's the mother of the Minotaur. And Kirka is also the aunt of Medea, the enchantress who helps Jason find the Golden Fleece. So let's meet the goddess of magic. Now, Kirka is perhaps most famous for her appearance in Homer's Odyssey. And here she turns Odysseus's crew into pigs, as she has done previous crews who arrived at her island. Many writers actually describe Kirka as the evil enchantress, and they focus on the transformation of men into pigs, as if Kirka does it for kicks. Yet Madeleine Miller, in her excellent fictionalised version of Kirka's life, actually offers an alternative. Now, what do we imagine a group of men who have been long at sea would do to a woman living alone on an island? She may be a goddess, but she's no Athena or Artemis, so there's no instant smiting for any transgressions against her. So instead, we can perhaps review these transformations as being Kirka's way of protecting herself against those who would do her harm. And obviously her power lies in her magic and her knowledge of plants, and thus she turns aggressive men into pigs. Now, in the case of Odysseus, he actually comes armed with a herb called moly, and this is given to him by the messenger god Hermes, and it persuades Kirka to turn his crew back into men. And obviously once she's actually got to know them and so on, I think everyone has quite a jolly time. And everyone spends a year on the island before they finally leave. Now, as Judith Yarnell points out, Kirka actually makes no effort to keep Odysseus on her island. And this is very much unlike Calypso, who will also encounter Odysseus later in his odyssey, except she keeps him enthralled on her island, more or less against his will. But back to Kirka. Before they leave, Kirka actually gives Odysseus the spell to call the dead from the underworld. And we did talk about this a couple of weeks ago in the episode on necromancy. And she provides him with the animals that he needs to make his sacrifice, along with the instructions for what he actually needs to do. And once he returns from their trip to the underworld, because he's actually followed a spell and he's followed her advice and everything worked the way it was supposed to, Kirka then dispenses even more advice. So she tells him how to pass the hideous sea monster Scylla and also how to pass the sirens unscathed. And obviously we did meet the sirens in a much earlier episode. I think it was about July last year. Now, Yarnell notes that Odysseus keeps asking how to fight everything that he encounters. And Kirk's instructions usually involve avoiding fighting. So running away in some cases is just as heroic as stopping to do battle, particularly in the case of Scylla, where there is literally nothing that Odysseus can do against her. 
And here, Kirka also demonstrates her superiority because she has the power of prophecy and the longevity of divinity on her side. So she's got the divine knowledge of all of these centuries behind her. And both of these trump the limits of military prowess when it comes to encountering other equally divine threats. And while Kirka plays a large part in the Odyssey, later writers unfortunately then recast her as being a wanton temptress, and over time she's identified more as a dangerous figure to men. So her associations with sorcery and even her own divinity fall away, and they're replaced by lasciviousness or lust, which I think are actually wholly unjustified. So perhaps we should revisit Kirka and ignore all the false news along the way. So what is the fascination with these three famous witches then? Well, they do cover quite the gamut of witch representation because all three of them are capable of providing aid or gifts and all three are also capable of causing harm. Though, to be fair, in Bifana's case, that's only if you actually manage to spot her. Now, the heroes must actually seek out Kirka and Baba Yaga. You have to actually enter their world to ask them for help. Obviously, this is the case of finding Baba Yaga's hut or landing at Kirka's island. They won't randomly come to you. And this also means that they won't just dispense arbitrary punishment unless you enter their space. So they're not like the evil witch stereotype preying on the unwary. And it does mean that they may cause harm, but only upon those who cross their path. Obviously, in Baba Yaga's case, it can be a little bit more over the top, you might say. But this is where she sets her tasks. And if you fail them, well, you fail them. And obviously, Bifana is the exception here because she's able to enter your home, although she can only do so on a specified night of the year. And there isn't really any reason to deny her access. But it does mean that you're not going to expect that to pop up on like September the 3rd or something like that. So you know when to expect her. Now, scholars, as I say, have tried to find links from Bafana and Baba Yaga back to ancient goddesses, and it is beyond the scope of this episode to decide how likely those links actually are. But in Kirka, we do find an ancient goddess ready formed, although she is often remembered more often as a witch than a goddess in her own right. Now, I actually feel that they sit on a bit of a spectrum. So you've got Bafana and her benevolence at one end, and then you've got Baba Yaga's capricious and unpredictable malevolence on the other. And then Kirka sits in the middle. She's not really malicious, and she's capable of offering great advice and aid to those who deserve it, but she's equally capable of turning you into a pig. Now, what I want to know is where would you sit on that spectrum? Pretty sure I know where I would sit. So yeah, that's my question to you. That is the end of this week's episode. I think for July, we're going to have a look at like the folklore of ordinary things, just as a little bit of a, a contrast from what we've been looking at, but it does mean kind of going a little bit more into the realm of superstition and so on. So we can have a look at things like the, the folklore of reflections, the folklore of numbers, sort of things like that. And then we'll have a look at remedies and medicine and so on in August, because I think that'll sort of fit better with the summer. So, as always, if you enjoyed this, please do feel free to leave me a review. Come and join the fun on Patreon. I am going to do the exclusive episode for this month, which is on Bawley Rectory today. Um, so that is going to be going out in the next couple of days. And also, before I forget, this podcast is eligible for the Listener's Choice Awards in the British Podcast Awards that are going to be happening soon. And you can vote just by going to britishpodcastawards.com forward slash vote. In the box, just simply type in Fabulous Folklore and then you can drop me a vote. And it would be brilliant to sort of get a bit more visibility, shall we say, for Fabulous Folklore, just so that we can get more of these legends out to more people. And that would be marvellous. So all that being said, I hope you have a marvellous week ahead and I will see you soon. Cheerio. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. 
If you did, feel free to subscribe using whichever podcast app it is that you prefer. If you do use iTunes, if you could leave me a review, that would be fab. Basically, it just means iTunes are more likely to recommend this to other people. And if you're interested in more folklore, please feel free to swing by my blog, which is www.icsedgwick.com, and that's Sedgwick spelled S-E-D-G-W-I-C-K. And you can find all of the links, images, and other bits and pieces that hopefully you enjoy. So have an absolutely fab week ahead, and I'll see you soon. Cheerio!